0: Uh, it is good to be back and good to get back into our study of Titus. In fact, I want to start off by saying, I want you to remember I, I have to confess this to our last uh, to the last time we were in Titus, two weeks ago, I was gone last week in in Washington, but uh, there was a an error on one of the slides, and and I didn't notice it at the time. And when the slide came up, a bunch of people broke out in laughter, and I wondered, what did I do? And it wasn't intending to be funny. So here's the quiz. If somebody remembers that, I've got some books here that I can uh, (laughs) give away, and and this time, instead of going to Rodney's office to get his books, I decided this one's on me, (laughs) and uh, if anybody remembers, and and I'm, I'm asking the women, okay, because... I think this I don't you know this had some it, it was it was about the women. So this is only guys. Okay, okay, we got some hands here. What was it? it was still, uh, 60, not 50. uh no, uh, it, th- there might have been that mistake too. I'm thinking of something <laughs> I am thinking of, uh, about something a little bit more embarrassing. Okay, right here. The single and marred yeah, the un <laughs> the the married or unmarred. Okay, so someone else had a hand up. So there, there it is. Uh, I don't know what that means. I, I really don't. So here, I, you've got a choice. Okay, two, another lady who, who picked this out. Where there was another handout here somewhere. Who wants a free book that they're gonna read? You might get all of them. I, you know, I guess that's it. So here you go. You get all three. The winner. Yeah, you were paying attention. And now Rodney really argued that this. There's nothing wrong with this. So. And you know, when I thought of it, I said, you know, it's probably true. You know, what what we what we blockheads bring to a marriage, you know, it, it kind of mars our, our our wives. So uh that's probably true, you know, it in in real I mean Rodney was at least speaking of himself, you know. So uh anyway, I had to clear that up. It should be unmarried, okay. There's a an I missed an eye and that got me on that one, so Uh, Feel free to point those out in the future, too. I I, want to make sure I'm accurate on those things and clear those kind of things up. Well, turn your Bibles to Titus 2, and we're going to continue our study today in this really practical epistle that the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, having left him to continue the work of establishing churches. And by way of overview where we're at in this letter, we're in this important and really practical section of chapter 2, And in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, Paul provides Titus with a countercultural household code for the new congregations that have been planted there in Crete. It begins with a fairly uh, abrupt shift, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And he says that in response to his previous instruction at the end of chapter one, dealing with the false teachers who were uprooting households, as Paul said, by by way of their false teaching. And as he gets into this household code for the church, this countercultural code for conduct in the household of faith, Paul focuses on different sections of uh, of Of life, and all of these different sections of life, these stages and classes of life were represented already in the church and so Paul takes the time now to give inspired instruction for how Christians are to live and Paul deals with uh, he deals with six uh, or actually five uh, areas within the church, five you could call segments of of the home. The you could you could look at it in terms of the the household of faith, five segments after he is expresses the necessity of these expectations. He then gives expectations for elderly men in verse two, for elderly women in verse three, for young women in verses four to five, for young men in verses 6 to 8, and for slaves in verses 9 to 10. In this section in verses 5, we began last time, never got... because there is some very countercultural instruction that Paul gives in those verses, and I want to take the time to be practical there, and so we're going to return to that uh, that focus of Paul as he instructs on the household of faith and our conduct in it. Let's review, so far, what we have covered as well as what we'll finish today at the end of verse 5, Paul writes this, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So we are in this fourth section here of the letter, this third category that paul addresses the expectations for young women and we have to note that paul out of all of these groups paul connects these expectations specifically to the to the category he addresses in the previous verse in in, in verse 3 and that's the older women and, and paul emphasizes here that especially for the younger women there is a vital essential role in the church that older women are to play in raising up the new generation of younger women after them. So when Paul writes at the beginning of verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women, that is part of the responsibility of the older women. So this would have been those who are at late 40s and above, would have been the category in that day for the older women, younger women, late 40s and younger and so when we go through this although Paul is giving us a list of expectations for the younger women this really continues to be a part of Paul's instruction for the older women there is a there's a direct relationship here and it's a very important responsibility that older women must have in addressing what older women can do best uh in in practicality within the church and that is teaching as Paul says teaching these young, the right virtue, right kind of culture that is to mark young Christian women. And what they are to inculcate is described then by Paul five, at three of these already. First of all, in verse four, Paul says that they are to inculcate within the younger generation, a love for one's husband. Now, Paul doesn't insist that every woman must be married. He He treats that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7 and acknowledges that there will be single women. But the general expectation is is that the women, the young women, will generally be married. And so Paul gives this general standard. And when he says that they must inculcate in the younger women a love for one's, one's husband, the wording that's used there particularly emphasizes affection, kindness, care. Paul isn't just affirming the necessity for loyal love, a covenant-keeping marital purity. He'll address that later. Here he is emphasizing care. He's emphasizing affection. And Paul says, Older women, your responsibility is to cultivate this among the younger women, this affection for their husbands. That's in Corinthians verse 4. Love for one friend. Essentially the same word for love is used, but now it is directed toward the children that the older women are to inculcate in the younger women this practical affection and care for children. This is especially important that those children have from their mothers this affection. And it is not natural per se. It is natural in a good world, but in a cursed world, in a world where the, the sin of the flesh continues to bombard life it is, a, it is a difficulty, and so this must be cultivated, Paul says. Thirdly, there must be prudence. Older women are to inculcate in the younger generation a well-balanced state of mind. It has an emphasis there specifically on the control of one's thought that leads to self-restraint. So controlling one's mind, controlling one's emotions. Older women who have been through the experience of life and have gathered this wisdom and have learned these things for themselves are in that ideal state to take young women alongside and say, this is how you control your thoughts. This is how you control your your emotions. This is what is honorable to the Lord. Now we want to get further into this list and look at the final four that... We didn't last time. The final four that Paul leaves us here in in verses 5 and following, or in in verse 5. The next one he lists deals with purity. Notice verse 5. He says, in insensible, they are to be pure. Older women are to inculcate within the younger generation of women a purity. A purity. The term here was often described in ancient Greek language, to, 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 to refer to those things that belong to deity. That's what the concept of purity, uh, how it was defined. It was something that belonged to the gods, or in Christian thought, something that belonged to God himself. The New Testament uses this term, pure, that we find here in Titus 5. It uses it to describe that which is manifestly Christian in nature. So, for example, we see this term pure in Philippians 4, verse 8, where Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, there's the term. Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Christians were to... All Christians were to set their minds on that which is pure it 's also used in first Timothy five verse two to refer to a, a freedom from sin first timothy five twenty two do not lay hands upon anyone speaking to elders here too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin that word free from sin or that phrase free from sin translates the word for Pure. We also find this word in James 3, verse 7, where it's used to describe the wisdom from above. But the wisdom from above, James 3, 17, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. This term pure, even, is used to describe Jesus Christ himself. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, John says that everyone who has his or her hope fixed on Jesus Christ purifies himself just as he, that is, Jesus Christ, is pure. It's also used by Paul and Peter to describe what could be called feminine chastity. For example, in 1 Peter 3... And we'll come back to these verses a little later. In 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 2, Peter writes, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they be without a word, by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste or, or pure and respectful behavior. And Paul uses it similarly in an analogy in 2 Corinthians 11. In the context here, as as, as we look at the surrounding words and the language of of Titus chapter 2, the best way to understand this quality is that which we could call matrimonial purity. Matrimonial purity. A a kind of purity that respects the exclusivity, the uniqueness of marriage. And, And that with one's husband and in no way communicates mixed messages or suggestions to anyone outside that marital bond. It's the same kind of an idea that is presented by Paul, using different language, but same idea in First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says this to the women, speaking of this matrimonial purity. He says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. You see, in that culture, there were certain signals communicated by certain articles of clothing and the way that women would do themselves up, And that would suggest things to others. And Paul says, listen, if you are to be pure, you don't don't mimic the culture in what the culture does to send these kinds of mixed messages. Paul says, no, don't have a part in that. Instead, be pure. Be pure in intention. Be pure in conduct, especially within this area The next one that Paul deals with is a more controversial one, and it's leading up to the most controversial one right at the end, the seventh one. But the next one, found in verse 5, after he emphasizes that the women are to have matrimonial purity, a kind of chastity to them, these young women, he then says to the older women, look, you need to inculcate in this younger generation the prioritization of the home. Notice what Paul says there in verse 5. Look at the text. He says, workers at home. Now, this is an interesting phrase, and certainly it elicits a lot of debate. What does Paul mean by this term, workers at home? Well, if we just look at how Paul puts the term together, he actually takes a, a, a word that means home, oikos, the Greek word home, and he joins it together with the word ergon, which means work. Homework. Worker at home is is the idea. As one dictionary translates this, the word refers to carrying out household responsibilities. And so sometimes translated as being busy at home. Paul uses a similar word. It's It's a synonym, not the same one, but a similar word in 1st Timothy 5 verse 14 where he again is addressing young women this time he's addressing young widows those whose husbands have passed away and 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 Paul there gives them instruction there in Ephesus through Timothy and he says this notice the consistency in the instruction here now we're talking about Ephesus no longer uh, Crete but Paul says this in 1st Timothy 5:14 he says therefore i want younger widows to get married children to keep house and to give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Very similar language to what we we find here in Titus 2, verse 5. And by the way, the word therefore, keep house, is very interesting. Again, it's built off the word oikos, or home, but then despoteo, despot. (laughs) It has has the idea of home despot. Now, of course, there's a lot of baggage with the term despot today. That's not what Paul is saying when we speak of uh, a despotic leader. It's someone... we we typically want to have nothing to do with Paul's not speaking of that rather he is speaking of how the here the the younger widows are to really be in control of their home they are to manage it and to do so well they are to recognize their priority there that this is the special unique domain that God has created for them to flourish and for others to flourish as a result of that Now, I want to be clear on this, coming back to Titus 2, verse 5, when he says they they should be workers at home, Paul is not restricting all the influence of women only to the confines of the home, as if to say that's the only place where they exist, lock them up there, and and that's it. That's a misrepresentation of what Paul is teaching. And for that, we, we can go to others such as Priscilla, the first convert that Luke records in the book of Acts, the first convert on the continent of Europe, there in Philippi, Priscilla, oh, excuse me, Lydia, that's Lydia. Lydia was the first convert that Acts 16. It's a fabric originally from Pergamum, which is in modern day Turkey, but Paul found her there in Philippi, across the Aegean Sea. She's selling purple fabric. Paul preaches the gospel to her. She's a God-fearer and she is converted and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Her home then is opened up to Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy, and she becomes that hostess there in the city of Philippi to host Paul during his ministry in in that city. Or Priscilla, the husband of Aquila, of whom we read in Acts 18 just a little bit later on on Paul's second missionary journey he goes from from Philippi to Thessalonica Berea and then he he goes to to uh, Athens and ministers there for a short time and then he ends up in 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 Corinth and you meet there through Luke's account this couple tent makers or leather workers And because Paul has the same trade, they're connected and and they find out that they're both believers. And and so Paul develops this teamwork and you have Priscilla, who is a a person who influences Apollos. Paul is not attempting to say here that the only place where women can be is in the home. That is a misrepresentation. He is instead emphasizing that this must be the priority. Nor is Paul... Limiting in any way by saying this has to be the priority, nor is he saying that the intellectual abilities and skills that young women possess are really not that big. you know it's just in the home. Well, that is a misunderstanding that is a reflection of what the 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 kind of socialistic ideas of men like Karl Marx. And angles have spread by by suggesting that life in the home is a demeaning kind of life. That's not what Paul is saying here. And for that, for example, we can go back to Proverbs 31. Read through Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 11, and see the intellect, the skill, the creativity of that God-fearing woman in Proverbs 31 and what she does in the home, and it's it's amazing it is it is astounding and so Paul is in no way by prescribing this going against the the intellectual contributions that women are to make rather what Paul is doing here is calling upon the older women to instruct the younger women to value and prioritize the home in that day as in ours there's- to look at work as somehow less than important, somehow lower than being an engineer, lower than being a, and you fill in the blank. Paul is responding to a current, a popular idea within the culture then, as he is today, that devalues the home. Instead, Paul elevates the home as the place where a woman's intellect, her industriousness, and creativity is to be put on unique display and where it is valued as necessary for the well-being of the family, for both husbands and children. This is crucial in, in the, the plan that God has for them. Now again, when we look at our culture, this kind of thinking is, is, is very offensive And in fact, even to say some of these things that Paul says, and simply to explain the terms, gets you into a lot of hot water outside of perhaps our circle here, even within broader Christianity. This is considered to be misogynistic. It's considered to be an ethic of way gone years, and that we've evolved morally and ethically, and we don't have these kinds of ideas anymore. Messages today from the culture are these, domestic duties are merely an invention of patriarchy. We find the idea that women will find their greatest contentment in contributing to society through the workforce or that true freedom, true freedom is found not in the not in the confines of a home, but in the freedom to pursue any career you want anywhere in the world. And so the message given by the culture today is, to young women in particular, don't be chained to a husband, don't be chained to a home, and be careful about childbearing because there are simple things you just can't get away from, and it's bondage. That's the message, and it is rife within secular society, and it is very popular even today in broader Christianity. Now, it hasn't always been this way in terms of the cultural pressures. But we do have to look at some of the roots of what we could call modern-day feminism and the strong uh, influence that feminism has had. And when we look at, of course, there's various roots that we could look at. But one of those main springs from which feminism comes comes from men like Frederick Engels and Karl Marx and the socialism that they propounded in the 1800s. One statement this is by Frederick Engels, a socialist, said this as it, as it relates to women. He said, "The emancipation of women will be possible. women can take part in production on a large social scale, and domestic work no longer claims anything but an insignificant amount of time now that was roughly about two hundred years ago, and that kind of thinking has spread rapidly, and it is especially prominent in socialistic-leaning cultures. For both Engels and Karl Marx, monogamy and child-rearing was considered oppressive. They argued for what they called free love. They are very much against monogamy because they considered to be a threat to the state, that there was a relationship, a covenant, that was considered higher than the state, and they did not. They, they did not want that, and so they argued for free love to start off with. They believed that freedom would be realized in releasing women from any domestic responsibilities. They believed that women would be happier in the factories and in the trenches. They, they realized they couldn't get around the fact that only women can gestate babies. So they thought that is the extent of what is unique about a woman Bring a, a baby into this world, but as soon as the baby has been delivered, then it must be placed in the care of the state. The woman must go back to the factory or to the trenches, and she'll be happiest in that kind of environment. That was the idea of Engels and Marx. And certainly today, when you look at how both socialism has developed and, and as well as feminism, you have many of those very same. Ideas. When you listen to the the general political environment of both parties, when you look at what comes through on the news and what is taught in the schools, it is the idea that to prioritize the home is enslavement. It is misogyny, patriarchy at its worst. It is abuse. Instead, the woman needs to be able to get out of the home, and there is where she will find her freedom. Paul says the exact opposite. Paul does not prevent a woman in any way from contributing outside the home, not at all. He's simply saying that the priority in God's design is that young women should look at the home as their first priority and how they order their lives. And so the question is raised, just kind of as an aside, to, to look at it this way and to reconsider how our culture and other cultures and influences have, ha- have impacted the way that we look at the home and the way that we look at culture and the workforce. So, for example, so the priority is the state. That's what Engels and Karl Marx argued. The most important thing is that you contribute to the good of the whole state. Get in the trenches, women. Go fight the wars, women. Get on the front line with machine guns, women. Go in the tanks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, go in the sewers and so on. Contribute to the good state of society, and then you'll find your, your realization. believe for yourself. And at the very end, the minimal amount of time is perhaps what you can devote to the home in certain forms of capitalistic society and the the more materialistic society, and I would even say the capitalistic secularism that we have today, it's not so much that the state is the center, but the self is. Go and pursue your career. That's what'll make you happy. Climb the corporate ladder. That's what'll make you happen, women. And that's what has been very much a part of what we see in the the secular capitalism, do everything for yourself, for your own good, then maybe have that spread to the home, and then at the very end is the state. But what Paul is a different ordering of priorities. And again, you know, the place of state itself, I don't want to get into that, but look at Paul's idea. Paul's idea is for the young women, listen, listen, God has created the priority for you in the home. You have an incredible potential. You have abilities that only you have, and this has incredible implications for your family, for your husband, for your children. He gets to the next, the sixth uh, characteristic then in verse 5. The sixth characteristic, he says, is to be kind, to be kind. The term here pertains to meeting a high standard of worth and merit. It's probably even better translated merely as, as "good." It's a hard word to translate, but we do see this term used to refer, for example, of Joseph of Arimathea in Luke chapter twenty-three, fifty, where Joseph of Arimathea is described as a good. And Righteous man or Barnabas in Acts chapter 11 verse 24 described as a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith and Paul says to the older women listen you must inculcate within the younger generation of women a kind of goodness a a kind of, of, of character that meets a high standard of worth and and merit. And again, looking at the context, it's, it's important to see this particularly in the context of the family. And we all know that in the daily grind of family responsibilities, it's, it's easy to become irritable. It's easy to become argumentative and resentful. You have a blockhead for a husband, right? You have children who are stubborn, and you have to deal with those kinds of things, and if you just allow the flesh to dominate, you will not be kind that's not what the flesh will tell you that to your stubborn ignorant husband you're you're going to let him have it and and you will you will so forth and with your kids who don't obey and who don't clean up after themselves and do foolish things you'll be tempted to to yell and scream and be irritable and Get revenge. And in light of that, Paul says t- to the older women, listen, you have to cultivate in this younger generation that which is contrary to the culture, that which is contrary to the flesh, and it is that you have to put on this kind, this good demeanor. Inculcate moral excellence in that context. Well, with that, we now get to the most debated characteristic that Paul prescribes here in Titus 2 when he says this, that they must also be subject to their husbands, being subject to their husbands. Now, Paul returns to a topic which he he introduced at the very beginning. In fact, you could look at it this way, that Paul begins with addressing their relationship to their husband in verse 4, and then he ends by addressing their relationship to their husband in verse 5. It's as if these are bookends that that Paul recognizes this is countercultural, countercultural to the Cretan society, to the broader Greco-Roman society, and this enduring word of God is certainly prescribing what is Contrary to our society today, and a lot of it has to do husband. And so Paul has these bookends. First of all, he begins with prescribing affection, care, concern for the husband. Now he prescribes subjection to one's husband. What does this mean? The verb means to subject oneself, it's it's expressed to emphasize. Voluntary conscious choice. It's not something that Paul says for the men to insist upon of the women. Instead, he says that the older women are to cultivate this in the younger women and that they are to consciously, deliberately recognize their responsibility and embrace it. To be subject oneself under and Paul limits this of course not to he doesn't expand it to all men instead this kind of subjection is is very exclusive he says to their own husband indicating or, or adding that, that that in order to emphasize that this is a, an exclusive responsibility that is enjoyed by no one else but within that marriage relationship. Now again, within the broader world, any hierarchy in the home is considered to be toxic. And certainly, as we'll talk about in just a moment here, there are very manifold ways in which male leadership in the home can be toxic. Paul here is not seeking to address every single situation that could possibly arise within our imaginations or within history. Instead, he is giving the general principle for how the home is to be ordered. Now, in light of that, let's ask some of those questions that come up with respect or in response to this particular prescription. And the first one is this. Is Paul's instruction about a wife's submission to her husband a limited command? unique to the Cretan context. And so some will respond and say, yes, this is exactly what Paul means, but it was very temporary, and there was thing that was out of the ordinary in Crete, and so Paul had to kind of get them back into some kind of order, and so he gives them uh, what's, what's called an ad hoc instruction, a, a very limited instruction, limited in application to that specific Cretan context and unless you are living in 8065 on the island of Crete this particular instruction doesn't have anything to do with you. That's what some will say, it's the limited application argument, the belief that this was just part of what was needed to get by in that particular situation. The problem with that is this, the same exhortation is given To other believers in differing contexts and is justified by transcendent principles. So, for example, Paul says, using the same language, that wives are to be subject to their own husbands, Ephesians 5. 22, he says it again in Ephesians five twenty four. wives ought to be subject to their husbands. Colossians three eighteen. Paul says it to the Colossian church, be subject to your husbands, using the same language. And then Peter uses this same language, writing in a different context. He says this in 1 Peter 3, 1, be submissive to your own husbands. So it's it's not limited to Crete. It has Broad universal application, and moreover in the texts the the instructions are justified not based on unique uh, situational circumstances, but the the, the the commands and the the instructions are justified by transcendent principles, for example, in ephesians five the the, the principle of Christ and the church and how Christ is the church. It's a situational temporary hierarchy in first Peter. The same idea, but there in 1 Peter 5, or excuse me, 3 verse 5, Peter reaches all the way back to the matriarch of the faith, Sarah. He goes back into Hebrew culture, going back 1,500 years, and praises Sarah for her submission to Abraham. There's there's not a, a kind of limited application, limited circumstance in which these instructions were given. Moreover, if you treat this instruction as somehow temporary, then you have to treat all of Titus 2. And all of the instructions given to all the different categories, older men, older women, younger women, all as being limited in nature. You can't just throw out one or two without throwing out the whole chapter and saying, this is no longer applicable in the 21st century. Century. This is part of the word of God that has transpired or expired. And that's not what we find in the scriptures. There is another question that is asked. Does this command then suggest that the husband is more valuable than the wife? Superior in essence. Us husbands can answer that in all honesty, even just from experience, and say, no, we are blockheads. But there's, there's more to the answer in this. We see in the scriptures that men and women are equal image bearers of God. We read that both men and women are mutually dependent. And they're described, men and women are described as co-heirs of the grace of life. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. The image of God is equally present in both men and women, not in one to a greater degree than the other. First Corinthians 11, 11 to 12 says, neither is wim- woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. There is a mutuality there. And in that context, Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians 11, arguing that, that man had. Un- but also stating in the same breath, but listen, don't take this the wrong way. There is mutual uh, dependency. He says in Galatians three, verse twenty-eight, with respect to the the, uh, the the grace of salvation and 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 being immersed into Christ. He says, "You are all one in in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek." Need man, there's male female, you're all in Christ Jesus. As far as your status within the church, your relationship to the Father through Christ, you're all equal. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Peter admonishes the husbands to treat their wives respectably, saying that the wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. If you put it in that context of inheritance, right? She gets just as much as you do. Act like it. Another frequently asked question would be this. Does the command then entail subjection to one's husband in an absolute sense? Submission without limits. Now again, we must understand Paul is not seeking to address every possible exception that could be imagined. He's giving a general principle. But we can and we must answer this question. And and the the question is, is is this kind of submission that Paul has in mind absolute? That it it is to be done all the time, no matter what? And the answer to that is no. And the reason is, is that no human authority is absolute. No human authority. Uh, On the one hand, we do realize that all human authority... All kinds of expressions of a human of, of human authority have been delegated by God. So there is no one who has inherent authority. Husband, you don't have inherent authority. You have delegated authority because there is no authority except from God. Human authorities, in receiving that authority expected to exercise that delegated authority in a way that is consistent with God's design. When they do not, resistance is even necessary, but never is that resistance allowed using sinful means. And that's why in Acts 5, verse 21, the apostles, after being charged in Christ, they resisted. They resisted, not through sinful means. They didn't go and, and bomb the high priest's home. They didn't go and assassinate him or the, the rest of the members of the Sanhedrin. They didn't attack them in a dark alley somewhere. No, there was no expression of sin against the uh, the sinful use of authority, but there was resistance. And and uh, Peter says, we must obey God rather than, than men so every human authority has a limitation and every human authority can abuse the delegated authority that has been given to them and when they do and particularly when that human authority is used to force sin upon another person there must be resistance there cannot be the willful engagement in what is sin now again uh there, there is in our society a particular uh, uh, anti-authority idea and movement that is present. We know it in our flesh, but like at practical levels, let's think of some of the spheres of shared authority and and how we realize that that yes, this is how, this is how society must function today if it is to, to uh, maintain some level of stability that there are these different spheres of delegated authority and and that even when they are expressed, it does not mean at all that the person who is under the authority is somehow not human, somehow not a, an image-bearer of God and a co-heir of the gift or grace of life. Let's look at these spheres in these categories, government, workplace, family, church, and then marriage, dealing with our text here. First of all, in government, Romans 13 says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. So how does that look? Well, let's, you know, we're all getting ready for tax season, right? And uh, the government is hiring an extra 80,000 IRS agents. So, you know, some of us in here could very well get audited, Right. So when the IRS agent calls up on the phone, you're, you're given a case number or whatever, and the agent says, you need to send me these documents. You need to send me these documents. What are we to do? We are to recognize its delegated authority, and we are to obey. IRS amount. What are we to do? We are to pay that amount. Certainly, we can take advantage of opportunities given to us, to protest what has been decided, to clarify, to correct, but we cannot firebomb the IRS. <laughs> we, we are compelled to, to obey. Let's think of it in the workplace. First Peter 2 verse 18 says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are reasonable. We're going to get to this in Titus 2 verse 9. There's an authority that is recognized there too of the employer and the employee. The one who gives the work and, and compensates. And, and the servants were compensated with food and lodging and so on. We'll talk more about that in Titus 2 verse 9. But let's think of it in terms of a school environment. A principal and a teacher. Let's say you're a teacher and you have a principal over you. Are you to are you to follow what the teacher what the principal decides? Yes. Can you just resist and expect to keep your job? No. The principal should have the right for you if you just say, "No, I'm not going to follow what you say." Teacher said or the principal says, "You're going to teach this class in this room." "No, I want to teach it a different time. I want to I want to teach it at at home in my pajamas or whatever." No, you can't say those things. And we recognize this is important for the stability of society. And that does not mean that the teacher is somehow less human than the principal. Let's look at it in the family. If you want to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Think of a parent and the child. Authority structure. It must be there. But does this mean that the parent is the image bearer of God? The child is not? No. Does it mean that somehow there is an inequality in essence between the parent and the child? Not at all. But there is a delegated authority that must be properly used, good God's intent for the expression of leadership. Hebrews thirteen verse seven in the seventeen in the context of the church, the writer of Hebrews says this: Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You think of the elder and and a church member. Now, is there a difference in equality before the Lord? No. Are we all equal in Christ? Absolutely. Are we all saved the same way? Yes. If anything, and this is certainly the case with all of these, the elder is held to a higher account. Greater, a greater demand is placed on his shoulders. And as uh, as Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, they will be those who will give an account. And so, in the same way as marriage, you take Colossians 2, two five wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And th- this is what you have. And in all of these situations, whether it's a government worker over a, a taxpayer, a principal over a teacher, a parent over a child, an elder over a church member, a husband over a wife, the expectation is, is that the authority must be exercised correctly. There is no difference in essence between the one who leads and the one who doesn't. When sin, that is required in authority. Then there, there is the need for resistance. Now, of course, liberalism rejects all of this. And especially rejects it with respect to well, all of these and all of these spheres in one way or another, but especially with respect to to marriage that there is no hierarchy, there is no leadership that is in the husband's hand hands, there is pure freedom in equality. There is an irony to this, and we see this even today in the feminist movement. It is a very, very sad and distraught movement, very dark movement. And it comes from this, that you might want to throw off and get emancipation from God's commands thinking that you will find better freedom there. And in reality, that is a lie. You do not simply find freedom in some other setting, throwing off God's ordained patterns and rules and categories of authority. You simply put yourself under a different authority that is, has no concern for your soul. J. Gresham Machen pointed this out in dealing with this issue on a broader level of how Protestant liberalism in the 1900s was seeking to do away with uh, these kinds of commands of Scripture and instead find liberty by by having no necessity to follow the the writings of Scripture. And this is what he wrote, and, and consider how this deals with even our setting today. He said this, quote, The grace of God is rejected by Modern liberalism, and the result, slavery, the slavery of the law, the wreckage, the wretched bondage by which man undertakes the impossible task of establishing his own righteousness as a ground of acceptance with God. It may seem strange at first sight that liberalism, of which the very word, very name means freedom, should in reality be wretched slavery. But the phenomenon change and get this last sentence emancipation from the blessed will of God always involves bondage to some worse taskmaster. And let me just say this, women, the culture is a horrible taskmaster, and it has absolutely no concern for your soul standing before the Lord and your true contentment in Christ. Now there's a quick there's a there's a statement that we'll go through quickly here right at the end having st- stated these Paul says so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Older women inculcate these things in the younger women so that the word of God will not be dishonored. What was paramount for Paul was ultimately not patriarchy. What was paramount for Paul was the word of God and its honor. The disregard of these instructions would result in the dishonoring or literally the blaspheming of God's word. Speaking of this doxological purpose, that this has been put in place for God's glory, one commentator expresses it as follows. Godly domestic patterns Undoubtedly send a message to the watching world, but more fundamentally, they mark the doxological living patterns that enable the crown of God's creation to so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Few implications here, and this time, I double checked. It says, "Young women married or unmarried." Number one. We saw this last time, or I stated this last time. Seek out the older women who will encourage these virtues in you. And and let me say this. um, Don't get this discipleship off. Social media isn't discipleship. It isn't. It has to be real life. Where you get to see with your own eyes. What's on social media is fake. And whether social media is, is pulling you towards conformity to the culture, or whether some of these social media gurus set up themselves as the special prophets of the day, that's not where discipleship takes place. You need to find real life women who can help you in these things. Moreover, let me also say this, discipleship doesn't have to be in organized meetings all the time. Sometimes it can be done through simple texts, asking questions, conversations, calls, emails. It's not some kind of curriculum that you have to go through that requires three years to get through. It's it's just making yourself open and teachable to older women after you've found them, asking them questions, and, and then seeking to earnestly apply what they tell you. That's discipleship. It can be just as informal as, as, as a regular friendship or it can be more formal where you decide you want to go through a book together with an older lady who exemplifies these things. Secondly, do not be naive about the culture. It's not neutral. The culture, that which is pumped through the media, social media, pumped through the school system and so on, it is not neutral and it does not have your best interests in mind. Number three, trust that God's word about your life and priorities is true and good, and it leads to real freedom. You will find emancipation from sin and it's by following these commands, That's where you're gonna find your command. It's not that you must become married, you must have all kinds of children and so on and so forth, but you have to prioritize these things and see where 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 God has has how God has designed the home for the flourishing of humanity. Number four, consider in concrete, concrete terms how each of these seven virtues can be in your life. Love of husband, love of children, prudence, purity, prioritization of the home, moral excellency, and submission to one's husband. What are the practical ways you can apply these things? Not just in abstract, but in practice. Finally, two more. Be very careful not to subtract or add to Paul's intent. That we, as I mentioned in the beginning of our last study, there's either the idea of antinomianism, where you want to throw it all off, or there's the idea of legalism, where you start to do these things thinking that this is what's going to make you really superior, and this is what's going to get you favor in God's eyes. Or you become a traditionalist or someone who wants to add all kinds of traditions to what Paul has said, and you go way beyond what Paul has said here, and that's not healthy either. There are many of those who want to do that and state what Paul has never said. Be careful, don't add, don't subtract. And finally, finally, the best, remember the grace of God. Paul says later on that the grace of God has appeared to instruct us in these things. And the grace of God is that which which covers and cleanses, it forgives. And you might say, I have... I have mental conceits and so forth. And, and you might say, this is unachievable for me. I've ruined it or what have you. And the grace of God comes along to say, it'll cover it. The grace of God is, is what covers and cancels the failures. It is what instructs and empowers you to, to move forward and to strive after these things for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we do come and ask for that grace, that grace in all of our lives that we need daily to cover and to cancel those areas where we fall short. We pray especially that this grace would encourage both younger women and older women that for those in Christ, there is no need for a life of regret. Instead, there's grace, grace that gives hope and strength, and opportunity. May you create this culture that we read of here in the lives of our dear older sister Christ and our younger sisters in Christ. As you do that, may you give to them the great joy that they will find in being submissive to your will for your glory's sake. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.